0: So, the, the name of the book is um, Visions of Sharia, um, which is a co edited volume of a number of essays, um, which I edited with Professor Michael Bahlander and Dr. Lawrence Daruj, um, both uh, of Durham University at the time of the conference that this book came from. So, it, it, the book is a compilation of essays which started at a joint conference in 2015 which was organized between the Al-Mahdi Institute and the University of Durham. And the motivation behind the book and the conference actually came from um, the co-editor, Professor Bohlander. So Professor Bohlander is, um, is a good friend of ours, and he's a, you know illustrious legal scholar. Yeah, he's a chair in comparative and international criminal law at Durham. He's had various um, roles as a, you know, as a judge. And um, so he was appointed to the courts of at um, of the, of the Hague um, following the Kosovo conflicts. He spent four or five years um, a, a, as a judge of the extraordinary chambers in Cambodia. But he also has a serious interest in um, comparative and international law. And had done a lot of work in Sunni jurisprudence and comparative law um, in terms of Sunni thought. Now he had participated in a conference that we'd held at the Al-Mahdi Institute, probably in 2014, 2013 or 14. And as he mentions in the preface to the volume, so he writes this in the preface, actually, that the majority of the academic field and the majority of actually the popular consciousness amongst non-Muslims and regarding Islam and Sharia, is in light of um, their understanding of Sunni jurisprudence. And so he wanted to um, help us and encourage greater attention to Shia legal theory, particularly because he was so surprised, and this is a comment he makes in the um, preface, by the ease and the mastery that contemporary Shia scholars of legal theory had over european thinkers so in the conference which he attended which was a workshop um, you know to do with fiqh and i think it was on the status of non-muslims in islam if i remember correctly you know he was shocked actually that these um jurists or people who were engaged in the study of islamic law the teaching of islamic law from a shia perspective could quote from kant um, hegel schleimacher and um, Kierkegaard, you know with ease and so he came to me after the conference, and he said that actually, you know, we need people to be um, more aware. You know, just as these thinkers are aware of European thought, you know, we need um, we need to create greater attention, or we need to encourage greater attention, okay, to the um, intellectual discourse which is internal to Shia thought itself. And so he wanted us to give a window onto the rich and vibrant field you know, of Islamic legal theory, you know, as a living intellectual discourse. I think this is one of the major contributions of the book, is that it brings together essays on Islamic legal theory and different topics in um, Usul al-Fiqh, of course, from a Shia perspective, um, but not with a purely historical interest. So if we see the, you know, history of the academic engagement with Islamic law generally Sharia more particularly, and of course, um, you know, Shia approaches to Islamic law. It's largely historical. You know, there's been very little literature on legal theory, Usul al in the contemporary phase. Um, and, you know, we wanted to engage with um, this intellectual discipline, you know, as a lived tradition and as a vibrant tradition. So Usul al-Fiqh, um, which of course is the focus of the you know the contributions here you know even when we look at the typical definition of a surah fiqh given from an insider shia perspective it's um you know often defined um, you know it's defined in various ways but the surah fiqh is the study of the common elements okay in the inference of sharia rules from their sources so it's about uh, um, discipline which engages in the study of the method and methodology behind Ahkam al Now, in that process, we see that the, you know, the lived, I would call it a tradition, you know, the lived tradition of um, scholarship in Usul al-Fiq contributes much more than just a legal theory. So within Usul al-Fiq, and this, I think this is true historically, and definitely in the um, contemporary period for Shia thought in particularly, you know we see that it's within usul al-fiqh that we find the richest discussions arguably you know, for the dominant epistemological and hermeneutical ideas of muslim thought so the dominant ideas about the theory of knowledge the dominant ideas about how to interpret not just texts but ideas even the world okay actually rooted and found within the discourse of so we wanted to shine a window into, um, you know, contemporary discussions okay, within this remit. Now, within modern Shia thought in particularly, arguably, or at least in my view, the uh, discourse of Usur al and of legal theory, is not just the foremost forum. You know, I know philosophers and theologians, um, you know, from within within the tradition may well disagree with me. But in my view, um, you know, for, for, for modern Shi'ism and contemporary Shi'ism, Ursula we'll sort of actually doesn't just provide the most vibrant forum for epistemological and hermeneutical questions and thinking, but also for pure philosophical and theological thinking. If we want to find, for example, some of the most cutting-edge discussions about the nature of um, God's will as opposed to God's, um, you know, predetermination, and human free will actually we often find them within treaties written by the ulama which are deeply hidden okay within advanced works of legal theory questions of pure moral philosophy about the nature of morality for example okay are hidden okay within the most advanced works of legal theory and of course legal theory has this um very sharp um, impetus towards, um, you know, giving us, as I said earlier on, discussion of the method and methodology of inferring, you know, those basic presumptions which Muslims carry that there is an ideal um, way to live and there is an ideal way to respond to each and every situation. How do we understand that ideal way to respond to each and every situation is what is studied in the sort of thick. So it was a it was a great privilege to be part of the the project, and that kind of hopefully gives you a sense of and the motivation behind it.
1: And thank you, thank you, Dr. Bojani, uh, for such a um, comprehensive and detailed information and background about the book. Um, my second question is about the the structure of the book, the content of the book, the main arguments of the book, and uh, as a whole, the structure and layout of the book. How is it starting and how is it concluding?
0: Sure. So, um, I, as I as I mentioned, it's an edited volume, so it's a collection of essays, and there are um, there are seven um, there are seven chapters in the book, uh, an introduction okay and and um, some appendixes right so the i'll try and take us through step by step so the idea was as i pointed to is to try and give um give a window into kind of the breadth you know of um intellectual vibrancy okay within contemporary discussions within legal theory within shia legal theory and actually also see how um, how the how the um discourse of legal theory is used as a platform for discussions around um, epistemology hermeneutics okay and and um, some very very pressing ethical questions within Islam so the way the book is structured is it's seven chapters and um, from seven different scholars and um, which reflects actually again you know this shifting and, and, and live and vibrant discourseable sort of thing was it brought together, you know, um, uh, a variety of very, very different scholars at different stages in their careers, including some who spoke with, um, you know, great authority trained to the very highest level in the places like Qom and Najaf and um, others. We had professors from, you know, with, with a purely academic background and from, for example, Professor Haider Ala from Pittsburgh. Then you also had young scholars, emerging scholars who, if you like, have a hybrid background being trained in a um, seminary context as well as having um, academic training at universities and holding phds so there's seven chapters um i'll take you through them through each of them it's framed with an introduction and um, which i wrote now the introduction. So if i start with the introduction and then say something about each of the each of the chapters and mention their um author so the introduction um seeks to very very briefly you know, survey yeah, the field of um, English scholarship on Shia legal theory. So it gives us a brief overview of, of what's already out there when it comes to um, Shia legal theory. Also of thick like in, in Shia thought and um, unfortunately it's a very, um, very open field. So there isn't that much out there. It also seeks to contextualize the contributions of the book and um, not just in terms of in the academic literature, but also Shia legal theory itself. So I referred in the introduction to a um, very interesting, uh, albeit brief, um, account of the history of Shia legal theory, which was um, taught by Sayyid Sistani um, in his, uh, uh, and has been published in the um, introduction to one of his advanced courses of Usul al-Fiqh, published as a Rafid fi Ilm al-Usul, which we've also translated you know, a few pages from that section as an appendix in the book. So I refer to that introduction of Sayyid Sistani, um, where he discusses three phases to the history of Shi'a Usul al-Fiqh. Now, the first, and and this is something which is very novel, actually, and um, actually very interesting, which Sayyid Sistani um, gives in terms of his classification of history. So, you know, there's different ways we can classify history. And for Sayyid Sistani, he gives us this periodization of Usul al-Fiqh, in terms of periods of intellectual struggle. So he says, look, we can can mark out shifts, okay, and periods based on the nature of intellectual struggle that was going on at any time or in any place. And so accordingly, he says that we can identify three distinct phases of intellectual struggle within the history of um, Shia legal theory. Now, the first intellectual struggle, Sirah Fikri, I think is the, um, the, the term that he uses, you know, the first intellectual struggle that he describes, um, you know, which characterized the output of Shia thinkers and scholars in legal theory was in response to intra-Muslim dynamics. So basically, you know, from the actually from the time of the Imams themselves. OK, all the way through to the 16th century, um, Sayyid Sistani says that Shia scholars were basically responding to the influences of and the different methods of interpreting Sharia that were um, around them, OK, amongst other Sunnis, OK, and other Muslims. OK, whether this was the very early tensions between, you know, the um, the, the schools or the approaches to understanding Sharia, which privileged know personal reflection and personal preference and non-textual reasoning okay or whether it was those who you know were and you know more textualist in their approach okay so Sayyid Sistani says this first intellectual struggle okay was the Shia engagement with okay scholars of other schools of thought so if we see for example um, Sharif al murtada is sometimes credited with um, producing the first complete work of usul al-fiqh within Shia thought. Others would say it was Shaykh al-Tusi's al uddafi fi al-fiqh, some would say it's Sharif al-Murtaza's and there's an there's academic debate there which I, I won't go into here, but if we look at Sharif al-Murtaza's al fi ilm al usul, we see he is actually engaging throughout with the views of non-imami Shia scholars, all right, um, in that work, okay, so it's positioned as a work in the context of Sunni thought more generally. We go all the way through to the time of Alama Hilli. okay, and Alama Hilli in his, you know, extensive output when it came to um, Usul al-Fiqh is again dealing with the cutting-edge ideas that were being developed, debate, debated. Um, you know, contested again in broader Sunni thought. So for Sayyid Sistani, the first period, okay, goes right from the time of the Imams all the way through to the 16th century and is characterized by a Shia intellectual struggle in responding to intra Muslim dynamics or theories. The second phase, okay, is the, um, characterized by a inter Shia dispute and an inter Shia um, intellectual struggle. And this is that famous Akhbari Usuli debate, okay, which was kind of epitomized in the works of Mullah Muhammad Amin Asravadi, okay, in the sixteenth and seventeenth century common era, um, you know, who, who was uh, the champion of the Akhbari school, and you know, the likes of Faiz Kashani, and ultimately, you know, moderate um, Akhbaris like um, Sa'ib al hadaiq al Naderi, Yusuf al-Bahrani. So these Akhbaris. Were um, responded to by the Usuli tradition, an Usuli tradition which was championed by, of course, Wahid Behbahani. Sayyid Sistani quotes, um, you know, the important contributions of Wahid Behbahani, Mirza Qummi, Saib al-Fasul, culminating in the works of the giant of um, of modern Shia Usuli thought, ya Murtaza Ansari. So, for Sayyid Sistani, we have a first intellectual struggle or first period of legal theory was the um, Shia response to, to the wider Muslim discourse and legal theory. The second intellectual struggle which shaped the development of um, Shia legal theory was an internal um, struggle between the, which arose out of these two tendencies, the akhbari tendency and the usuli tendency, which would come to dominate and culminates in the works of um, Sheikh Murtaza Ansari. He then moves to the third of his three periods and this is what helps us contextualize the contributions in this book and why have we included mention of it in the introduction to the book I decided to include a translation of this discussion as an appendix Is It says the third phase in the history of Shia legal theory is the contemporary phase. This is the intellectual struggle which characterises the contemporary phase of um, legal theory, which he's positioning as after Murtada Ansari, is characterised by, due to um, various political factors and economic factors, the Islamic culture and heritage finds itself in a deep struggle and needs to move its engagement with theoretical questions behind Sharia, Okay, to respond to these contemporary challenges. So it was within this context that we thought it was, um, you know, a great opportunity for us to give a window into some contemporary thinking, okay, in Shia thought. So that gives you a taste of the introduction and a sense of Said Sistani's um, periodization, which hopefully gives an in, inside a context, actually, okay, to why Shia scholars see legal theory not as a historical discipline okay or as a dead discipline and as a static discipline not arguably it has been you know the most important discipline and rightly or wrongly okay within shia seminaries okay for, for generations and continues to be so so i think that takes us um, you know to saying something about the the, the chapters within the within the volumes so the first chapter is written by um, Ayatollah Professor Mohaqiq Damad, who of course is an um, you know illustrious scholar, a member of the Academy of Sciences of Iran, and a professor in the Faculty of Law at Shahid Beheshti um, University. And um, his his contribution here is about that is titled "The Reception of Factuality Theories of Ijtihad in Modern Usuli Shia Thought." So this chapter. Um, actually discusses the theoretical framework for ijtihad and ijtihad being and um, very simply if you like the you know the the efforts the effort of qualified jurists to interpret sharia from its sources now the whole idea that uh, we need ijtihad or that there is a need for ijtihad so there's a need for expert intellectual effort to interpret the sources of sharia kind of presumes that the sources are not absolutely clear okay and that there is a possibility for difference of opinion so now the theories of ijtihad which are discussed in this chapter okay were a response to try and understand that diversity and and this isn't a question which only is engaged with you know it's an early classical question you know in legal theory saying that look if there's diversity of opinion okay regarding you know how we ought to live how we ought to act you know what's the limits of that diversity of opinion okay and how do we how can we how can we get our head around that you know and you know how can we theorize you know the reality that if if sources of knowledge okay are not absolutely definitive this is going to give rise to difference of opinion how much of this difference of opinion can be legitimate and how much of it can't be legitimate, okay? And how does this work anyway, Yeah. in terms of us trying to aspire to understand, as is the remit of the jurist, you know, the rulings of God, you know, and the way that God wishes us to act in any given situation. So that gives you a taste of what the debate is about. Now, Ayatollah um, Muhaqq, what he examines is a particular theory of ijtihad, which is referred to as tasweeb, Okay, or factuality theories of Ijtihad, which is typically associated with the non-Shia Imami position. So Imami Shia scholars are rhetorically very, very strongly proponents of the takhta'a theory of Ijtihad, which basically means that yeah, mujtahids are fa and mujtahids make their best efforts to try to discover a ruling which is correct in the knowledge of God. Now, if the efforts of the mujtahid miss the truth, OK, they can still be valid and they can still be a valid excuse before God, as long as they're a result of a procedurally sound and rigorous method. So the Taqta'a theory suggests there is a correct opinion, OK, and the results of the jurists, OK, are reliable. Like it can be authoritative, Okay, even if they don't get things right. yeah. Now, Sayyid Muhaqqaq actually looks at the contrary theory, the theory of tasweeb, okay, which was very prominent um, amongst some of the Ahl-Sunnah, which suggests that whatever the mujtahid um, infers is the truth and is the correct position. Of course, the proponents of tasweeb Um, only advocated tasweeb where the um, evidences weren't explicit in the Qur'an. But Sayyid Muhaqqik's actually aim in this um, chapter is to demonstrate that despite Imami Shia having a strong rhetorical, um, you know, affirmation for takhta'a fallibility theory, okay, there has been influence of the tasweeb theory upon Shia thought, you know, citing the likes of Akun Khurasani and, and some of the most sophisticated ideas, actually, that we see in um, Sheikh Ansari's work, his theory of Maslaha Sulukia, which is sometimes described as the Shia tasweeb. So in this way, um, Sayyid Muhaqqa actually demonstrates that there are certain questions which may have been perceived as closed you know, and settled within Shia legal theory, which are actually open. Okay, and um, not only are they not only does he set out this precedent to say that you know theoretical questions which seem closed and well settled, yeah, are open, they always have been open and they can continue to be and um, reviewed and reconsidered. And he points to the influence of and um, you know developing the sweep theories in a variety of ways, including um, in terms of understanding religious plurality more generally, where he refers to the ideas of Muhakiq al kummi and so I think that's plenty um, to say about the first chapter. I should say something now about the um, second chapter. So the second chapter is written by um, our colleague and friend, Dr. Hashim Bata, who's a graduate of the Mahdi Institute and has his PhD from the from Warwick University. And his chapter is looking up, you know, some questions which maybe lead on from the from the first um, chapter quite nicely. Because if we're asking in chapter one about the theory of ijtihad, in light of not all sources of knowledge being absolutely definitive, you know, Dr Hashim asks the questions, Okay, so what is it that allows us to rely upon a source of knowledge anyway, when it comes to um, seeking knowledge of the law or knowledge of God's rulings? So here, um, Dr Hashim You know, highlights very, very clearly and problematizes, you know, the dominant epistemic assumption, you know, in modern Shia legal theory. So in modern Shia legal theory, to try and sum it up, and this is particularly in the school of um, Sheikh al-Ansari, or the positions attributed to Sheikh al-Ansari, is that a source of knowledge, okay, with regards to Sharia, okay, or Sharia ahkam, it is authoritative, is reliable okay is a hujja okay when it is either certainty bearing yeah it gives qat it gives this gives the jurist you know and certainty yeah or there's a certain validation for that source of knowledge okay so we can rely on two types of evidences one type of evidence is that gives me certainty directly and another type of evidence which might not be certainty bearing in itself but has a certain justification behind it. So, um, Dr. Hashim quite clearly outlines this premise. Okay, looks at how looks at its philosophical underpinnings. Looks at how it's been received and challenged. Okay, by post by some pre Ansari scholars and some post Ansari scholars. The likes of um, you know some of the very philosophically rich discussions given by the likes of Ayatollah Khomeini on these ideas, um, Ayatollah and Zanjani. Okay, as well as some of the other commentators and actually looks to problematize, you know, the basic epistemic assumption driving much of modern Shia legal theory about the intrinsic authority of certainty and how if, you know, the um, Shia legal theory wishes to continue to be philosophically rigorous, it needs to ensure that its epistemic assumptions continue to be philosophically rigorous. In his view, reassessing these epistemic foundations would open up, you know, the arsenal of the jurists to refer to, as he puts it, a wider range of evidence in the inference of Sharia precepts. Um, so hopefully that gives us an insight into um, Dr. Hashim's contributions. And I should say something about um, subsequent chapters as well, before I run out of steam. Um so the third chapter is i think um in my view one of the outstanding contributions in the volume it is by um, um written by ayatollah dr Rahim nobaha who again is one of the um, senior lecturers at the institute although he's based at shahid beshti university um, and an expert in criminal law the work um you know follows very much the remit that we initially asked him to Speak to um, at the uh, at the initial conference, examining the role of the Quran, okay, in ijtihad, okay, from a Shia perspective. Now, he touches on a number of very very important um, and in some cases seriously under researched. So he starts with um, a discussion of, you know, this interesting tension, that the uh, um, nature of revelation, okay, according to Shia philosophers, has been something very difficult to understand. And those who are interested in Shia theology and philosophy will be aware that this is a vibrant area of debate and contestation you know, amongst Shia scholars about the nature of revelation itself. Um, Now, Dr. Nobaha here in this chapter points to an interesting tension that despite, you know, some um, theological and philosophical deliberation about emphasising the, 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 the fundamentally divine nature of revelation, you know, which is, of course, the, you know, the dominant mainstream view in Shia thought that revelation is something ultimately divine. Okay, and this was a revelation which the Prophet received purely as a recipient. Its nature is otherworldly. Yet, okay, from a legal point of view, okay, for the legal theorists, they treat it as ordinary language. All right, so he sets out his contributions, okay, by um, framing this fascinating, we could call it tension. That there's an assumption that the revelation is fundamentally divine and otherworldly, yet when it comes to interpreting the Qur'an, okay, the whole system of Islamic jurisprudence, you know, depends upon, you know, ordinary conventional use of language and applies the principles determined from the ordinary use of language to its interpretation of the Qur'an. He then moves to discuss, um, and again, it's a very under-researched area, and if you like, this is a preliminary contribution, and I think Dr. Nobaha really opens up this discussion and his, you know, his footnotes are a treasure trove of um, of information for the interested reader and, and researcher. He then intro- he, he has, a, has a short discussion about the history of the scholarship on the Ayatul Ahkam um, within Shia scholarship, so a discussion of And those verses of the Quran which have legal import, um, you know what's its history, you know um, know, what have been the the key contributions, um, um, so on and so forth. He then moves into this, you know, major discussion about the role of the Quran in ijtihad, and of course this becomes positioned again, you know, within largely within the Ahwariyusuli debate. Okay, and he, he of course gives a although he gives a rigorous and defence for the centrality of the Qur'an within ijtihad. And, you know, a note which I make in the introduction, you know, the fact that it needs defending, okay, suggests that, you know, suggests something. And so there is a controversy there, actually, as to which really is the primary source in modern Shia jurisprudence. Is it actually the Qur'an? Okay. Or is the Qur'an taking a secondary place? Okay. Yeah. In light of the um, prevalence of historical precedent okay, or, of course, the interpretation and application of a sunnah and a hadith. Dr. Nobaha gives a defense for the centrality of the Qur'an in ishtihad, but finally concedes something to the Akhbari view, saying that the one thing that we have to be careful with is that by opening up the centrality of the Qur'an and emphasizing the centrality of the Qur'an as a um, source of normativity, you know a source of you know ethical and legal guiding principles. and we have to be careful that it still requires, in his view, you know expert interpretation, okay, and that there's a risk that the Quran, when read, okay and superficially, okay, can actually become, yeah you know, a source of misguidance. I think that moves us to um chapter four. I'm just looking at the time. Chapter four is again a colleague of ours, Dr. Imran Ali Panjwani, who was a graduate of the Al Mahdi Institute, independent scholar working in the legal, um, working in the legal forums here in the UK. His chapter is titled From Theory to Practice, the role of the subject in the derivation of rulings and its potential in creating a system of case law for the operation of Shia law. So, what's central to Imran Ali's concern here is to again try and broaden the input or broaden the theoretical um, consideration okay, over the things informing the inference of Ahkam okay, and the production of Ahkam. And I think he brings his own legal experience um, and um, legal knowledge okay, to his approach here. So he looks at, he focuses in particularly about concerns regarding what we call the subject of the law. Now, typically and traditionally, ijtihad is concerned with identifying ahkam, you know, the rulings, inferring, as I said earlier on, you know, the, a, a definition of usud al-fiqh would be, you know, the study of the common elements um, involved in inferring the ahkam from their sources, right? But of course... Studying, uh, you know, for, for, for the practice of law, knowing the ruling isn't enough. The subject to which we apply the ruling also has a huge influence in the way the law works. And Imran Ali's concern is to actually try to open up space within legal theoretical deliberation, within usul al fiqh to consider more carefully the role of the subject or the ma'udhu in Ilm al-usool and he identifies in particularly okay or focuses on or calls for greater attention to the notion of banal okala okay ordinary rational convention as a basis for considering case law and precedent to have a greater theoretical role or, or to have a greater um have a greater platform or greater um, consideration narration in Usul al-Fiqh. Chapter five um, is by Professor Haider Atla al-Moodi, is, a pro, um, I think he's, he's now dean of his law school in, in Pittsburgh. Um, so the, the bio that we have here is, um, I think, out of date now. So um, he's now dean of the University of Pittsburgh Law School, um, whose scholarship focused on Middle Eastern and Islamic scholars and uh, Islamic law. He's prolific in um, writing on um, Islamic law has an excellent um, blog on this and um, you know it's very accessible and um, to those who are interested in looking him up um, and he writes you know very engagingly so i'd recommend that people look at his other work so um professor hey contributions you know move us a little bit away from the discourse of usulu thick directly okay and is looking actually about um raising questions for legal theory so rather than looking at the discourse of legal theory he's looking at socio-political um, circumstances okay which raise questions for legal theorists and he identifies i think a very very important phenomenon which he calls strategic juristic omission so um, professor hayder examines and discusses how we find in the output of jurists, okay, leading jurists of our day, okay, um, some tensions between the legal systems of their lands or the lands of their followers, the views, okay, um, and or of the followers, the actual legal doctrine or fiki doctrine, which the jurists have historically promoted, and he suggests that one of the ways that the jurists have responded to this tension between the social legal frameworks, the, um, if you like, demands, if I put it in that crass term, yeah, of the opinion-seeking Muslim and the historical views of the jurists themselves, which the jurist is a guardian of, you know, or, you know, a bastion of, you know, one way that they deal with this tension is to actually strategically omit some of their views from their pronouncements. He gives a number of examples he talks about for examples um, the, the the views of scholars regarding um, regarding marriage and regarding slavery for example you know without actually having rejected historical views and saying that they no longer hold them or that they don't consent to them or that they think they're invalid okay they rather they omit them now the focus of the chapter is on the blood money okay and apparently I think it's fair to say, actually discriminatory rulings in historical Shia fiqh regarding the blood money of a non-Muslim and how um, this actually sits in tension with, you know, the outstanding and actually sometimes landmark statements of the Maraja, okay, in the context of um, contemporary Iraq, okay, and ISIS and regarding, you know, the equality of shia and sunni okay yeah muslim and non-muslim okay and so he highlights the ecumenical statements of the ulama in particularly in the iraqi context okay Um, and in their response to Daesh, okay he then looks at the historical um discriminatory rulings regarding diya okay and the tensions Okay, in terms of the local rule um, law in Iraq, which doesn't make the same discriminatory, um, it doesn't make the same discriminatory distinction between the blood money, okay, of the Muslim and the non-Muslim, okay, and then raises questions for the jurist. Okay, there is strategic juristic omission. Is the jurist simply not stating their view? All right, am sufficient, or do they need to explicitly? reconsider their views. So that hopefully gives us a sense of the very provocative engaging and thoroughly researched chapter um, by Professor Haydar Hamoudi which takes us to the sixth chapter which was my own contribution titled Towards the Hermeneutics of a Justed, Justice-Orientated Reading of Sharia. So here I'll try to be brief now um, the, I mean, the basic premise of the chapter is one which I explored in my um, earlier book, Moral Rationalism and Sharia, which seeks to explore the space within Sharia jurisprudence for reason as um, an independent source of Sharia rulings. And not just any form of reason, it's of course particular moral judgments okay, um, regarding Sharia. The premise is that, of course, if, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just, in a humanly understandable way okay um, then surely his actions are just okay and his rulings are just now what happens if we have rulings which are inferred from the scriptural sources of sharia which are apparently immoral okay to the human mind so the chapter looks at how usul al fiqh might help us okay reconcile apparent tensions between um judgments of um, potentially relevant judgments of human morality, okay, yeah, and inferred human judgments, okay, of scriptural norms, yeah, based on the premise that we can't attribute an immoral ruling to a just God. And I suggest a three stage hermeneutic, okay, where if we have an, an, an apparently or potentially valid judgment of human morality, that a particular ruling is immoral and can't be attributed to a just god okay we need to go through a three-step process of um reconciliation first we need to try to assess okay is the scriptural source or the scripturally based ruling okay could it be understood as potentially moral in its own context if so yeah we would seek to reconcile both evidences and consider the scriptural evidence as contextually specified if that isn't possible we seek to reread the um, scriptural source and if there's a reasonable okay reading of the scriptural source away from the apparent meaning which is consistent <coughs> with the moral evidence okay we would reread and um, the scriptural source and if okay that isn't possible then ultimately yeah we would do tawakof or tasakot of the adilla, we would either withhold our opinion or drop both evidences. And I tried to give some um, groundings for such a hermeneutics from within the discourse of legal theory and with some illustrative examples. The final chapter is um, by Sheikh Dr. Hassan Balushi um, of Kuwaiti origin, who's bae, who is a teacher in the um, Hausa of Karbala, holds a PhD from the University of Exeter. And gives us this very, very important contribution on the al Sharia discourse in contemporary Shia jurisprudence. So Maqasid al Sharia discourse is, of course, very, very important in Muslim thought more generally, has been historically and increasingly so, where it seeks to very simply privilege and um, the objectives of Sharia over its particular form. Now um, Sheikh Hassan, um, Dr. Hassan looks at the you know the historical development of Maqasidi-type thinking in Shia thought. He points to um, how the some of the, actually, and contextualizes this against the broader development of Maqasidi thinking within the Sunni world by the likes of Shatabi, um, uh, which you know, developed in a very different way ideas, which we earlier see in the likes of al-Ghazali. And Sheikh Hassan, I think, correctly notes that the some of the theological infrastructure for a maqasid for a vibrant maqasid discourse which seeks to make reference to the intentions of sharia or the purposes of sharia you know has um is very much sustainable okay within a shia theological worldview where um allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one who not only works um with justice but works as the previous chapter and um, relied upon but works with purpose okay and with hikmah Okay, so this theological foundation, which um, uh, is fundamental to um, Imami Shia thought, is of course one which ought to be ripe for a makassid type um, discourse, and one which isn't always held by proponents of a makassid discourse in the wider Muslim, um, in wider Muslim thought. So Sheikh Hasan points to that kind of theological tension and opportunity. Yeah, or the fertile ground for a Maqasa discourse, looks at the historical development, okay, and, and identifies how it's been very, very different in a Shia context. And actually relates it to some of those major epistemic questions which were touched on in a different way by um, in, in Dr. Hashim's um, contribution and grounds it with the socio-political concerns which came about, for example, with the Islamic revolution and changes in the Iraq and points to the possibility and likelihood or otherwise of a fuller Makassi discourse being developed within within Shia thought. Finally we have an epilogue by um, Professor Robert Gleave who is uh, um, you know he's a a leading voice of um, academic um, Islamic law and whose specialism is Shia legal theory and although he didn't participate in the conference And from which this this volume emerged, we thought it would be nice for him to comment on, um, you know, on the the contributions. And I think he rightly identifies that the contributions within this chapter, as he puts it, represent some of the most adventurous side of Shia legal theory. And he translates and offers us a, um, a, you know, a, a section of a text by a contemporary jurist. Ayatul Subhani, Jaafar Subhani, which again deals with some of the epistemic questions which came up in a number of chap- chapters about the authority of certainty and the, or the authority of conjecture or in al Subhani's view, the non-authority of conjecture, okay, as a balance to some of the discourse within the the, the volume. But I very much hope that uh, that has given you a sense of uh, uh, of what we have. Um, and the, the yeah each of these contributions um, you know are are hopefully um, full of um, good researched and um, scholarly views which can open up discussions as well as make contributions in and of their own selves.
1: Wow! Excellent. Thank you, Doctor, thank thank, thank Dr. Agnes yeah. yeah. I mean, it was wonderful. I think um, you help many people who really love to buy the book and cannot afford. To buy the book, to get to know what the book is all about, and you know what each chapter's uh, main argument, main arguments are, and uh, so thank you for that. I am I, sure everyone would appreciate that much of the details and um, uh, insight of the book. And as a last question, um, briefly, who would you recommend this book to? Sure.
0: Um, so I think the book is written. Of course, it's written for um, it's written for a, a, an educated, interested audience, um, which was the original impetus. You know, was to shine a light, you know, onto these advanced theoretical discussions. Of course, some of the discussions are are advanced and are theoretical and are technical. Others are much more accessible. So I think any interested reader, okay, anybody interested in Islamic law anybody interested in sharia anybody who wants an insight into the cutting edge thinking going on okay in, um, in 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 Shia thought okay or to you know visit at least some of the chapters within this book of course it will be of special interest to those who have an interest in islamic legal theory okay islamic law even islamic theology and philosophy and certainly students uh, students of the hausah and serious seekers of knowledge beyond academia